Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode 51 of The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by Pandora Sykes and Dolly Alderton. And I hereby declare spring open. Welcome spring. I came here not wearing a jacket, can you believe that? I thought you were about to say something else. The Hilo mailbag has been bulging as ever. Thank you so much for all the kind, supportive emails a lot of you sent after Dolly's Oscar speech, calling for a little bit more kindness and a little bit less judgement last week. Some useful housekeeping to pass on. A listener named Hess recommended an app called Hold off the back of last week's discussion on loneliness and teenagers and the contributing factor of social media. At the click of a button, you can put your phone on hold, explains Hess. Every 20 minutes that it isn't used, you earn 10 points. You can then use those points to get things like free coffees or cinema tickets, or, and this is the bit that I think is great, you can use your points to donate to a charitable cause. So, for example, you can currently donate books or pencils or footballs to children in need through UNICEF using the points you've earned by not going on your phone. That sounds like an app for good. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much to Hess. So we had lots of emails um, about voice notes after the CJ compilation of my drunken voice notes to Pandora <laughs> We did. Week. We had some great ones. Uh, something that came up a lot were people who said that they've moved abroad. And if there's a time difference, that voice notes are really, really useful. Absolutely. Because you can have, albeit a one-way conversation, but you can hear your mate's voice... Um, without having to pick up the phone at 3am. So I did hadn't thought of that. We also had an email from Olivia who um, questioned the narcissism of voice notes. She said, I now live in Buenos Aires and can safely say that voice notes here are a big thing because Argentines like to talk. <laughs> Communicating with my friends in London has been made simpler and more intimate with voice notes. I received many a 20 minute long ramble from friends in London on a night bus home. Oh, I think I'd love that if I were abroad. But we must be aware of the sheer narcissism that they can lead to. When was the last time you had a 20 minute conversation about yourself? Let's hope people start realizing it's just as easy to have a two way conversation. I mean, Olivia, on a weekly basis, Dolly and I have a 67 minute conversation about ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) We also got an email from Katie about voice notes um, with a story that sent shivers down my spine. My best friend lives in Canada, me in London, and we basically helped to maintain our friendship by leaving long rambling voice notes for each other all the time. One evening I left a very long descriptive note for her after a bikini wax, going into great detail on the technique, thoroughness and method of the beautician. I even mentioned her needing to get the nail scissors <laughs> the nail scissors out to get things started as it had been so long. We've all been there. I forgot about it and returned to my phone a few hours later to find out that I'd actually left the message on a WhatsApp running group set up by someone at my son's school about 30 mums and dads I've known for about three months I love the I even mentioned I needed to get out the nails <laughs> this one from Ellie was my favourite her email was just a, a joyous romp of an email 
I love the sound of my own voice, and the joy of a one-way conversation is that no one interrupts you or questions your reasoning. I can spend up to five minutes babbling, and I send them to everyone, even my boss, who politely but firmly said that she never wanted to hear from me if it was going to come in this format. Success? I think so. What I most enjoyed, certainly in the beginning, was the sheer hate I received from my friends for them. Voice memos are so 1989. Stuart, age 30, was a personal favourite. I take such delight in how many people, especially men, cannot stand voice notes. When they build up the courage to send one back, it's fantastic. They always sound so tentative and awkward, like little voice note mice. (laughs) I loved this email. You are no voice note mouse, Dolly. You are a lion. And I have to say, Ellie, you are definitely no voice note mouse. (laughs) What have you been enjoying this week, Panda? Well, I found you a new Chrissy Teigen, Nev. Who? Kate Beckinsale. Oh yeah, you tagged me. You tagged me of her on Safari. Follow her on Instagram, she's hilarious. I really want her apron, and you'll know what I mean if you look at her page. So you can come back to me about her apron. Okay, I will. I've been reading a book called Anatomy of a Scandal, which was recommended to us by a listener named Rose after our discussion a few weeks ago on the Ulster rape trial. Incidentally, did you see this week that the two players have had their contracts revoked? Mm. Which is good Mm. news. I shared the book cover on Instagram stories and I got loads of replies going, best book ever, so gripping. I'm enjoying the sticky subject matter more than I am the writing. If you love the way Gone Girl and Girl on a Train are written, then you'll like it. It's very typical thriller fare, but it's a clever and necessary book. It's about an MP named James Whitehouse, white, Etonian, Oxbridge educated, who stands accused of rape by his assistant. It was a prescient week to be reading actually as I read a piece in the Sunday Times magazine at the weekend about young men who had been accused and cleared of rape by Katie Glass. Mm. I think it's really important as you said recently Dolly to show both sides of an argument even when it's one that's really flammable. And also just just to, to really unpick the framework of the legal system. Yeah and in no way should men who have been misaccused of rape be, you know, silenced because of the subject matter. Although I did think that the Instagram story shared by the Sunday Times magazine to promote their piece was quite provocative. It said, is the legal system biased against men? And that does blatantly ignore the fact that rape convictions currently stand at 6%. Mm. And Rape Crisis Org says on their website that conviction rate in rape cases is considerably lower than in any other crime. So I think we need to be careful about... Swinging too far the other way. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, both very interesting pieces of material, particularly to read in conjunction. Because also that, that is, particularly for the sort of conservative typical reader of the times of the sunday times that is sort of the inflammatory thing that confirms all their most unfounded fears i'd sort of argue that not many historical systems in place are biased against men but you know let's not get into into (laughs) that now satnam sangara one of my favorite journalists he did the most brilliant interview a few months ago with sadiq khan do you remember when i was waxing lyrical about that our darling sadiq Darling Sadiq, Satnam wrote a piece for the Times magazine on Saturday about the lack of diversity at Oxbridge, which was riveting. I love the way he writes. He draws so much on personal experience, but he doesn't mine it in this 
you know, in the mawkish way of like confessional journalism, he uses it as a working class boy from Wolverhampton to he's just kind of looking in and sharing, contextualising in a way that's really useful, I think, particularly, as you say, for the Times reader, who is a bit more conservative. So Satnam, working class boy, first to go to university from Wolverhampton, is a graduate of Cambridge. He went over 20 years ago. He wrote the piece in the wake of former education minister David Lammy's shocking research that between 2010 and 2015, more offers from Oxbridge were made to students of Eton than students on free school meals across the country. There should be tens of thousands of working class people from the provinces with a tail like mine, writes Satnam, but after nearly 20 years I remain among the exceptions that prove the rule. He offers lots of points that aren't referenced when we talk about this kind of quite academic research. Many state school pupils often lack the titanium self-belief that private schooling instills in kids and the dinner party conversation training that Oxbridge interviews arguably test with notoriously elliptical questions which have no real answers, such as why do plants have brains and do you see me like a camera? Which is really interesting. That reminds me of when we had Stu Heritage on the show and he was talking about this titanium self-belief that me and you carry, I think, Mm. from a private school education. And that Stu said he still felt sometimes with his accent as well. There's also, after the piece ran in the magazine, there was an interview with a 19-year-old named Varedzo, who happens to be best friends with Malala, uh, that little-known activist, who arrived in the UK from Zimbabwe, unable to speak any English, AJ, and she's now studying classical archaeology and ancient history at Oxford. And she says, getting into Oxford from a school like Harrow or Eton is not comparable to doing it from a state school. Those A's mean different things. My A was earned in an environment that was loud and disruptive. The student next to me got an E and I got an A. So what does my teacher do? He has to teach at a D grade. I'm not discrediting someone with A's from a private school, but it's a bit like I've run a marathon while they've just walked through the front door. Food for thought, mm. particularly in in the wake of those comments made by David Lammy, you know, just because he made the comments doesn't mean anything's Good. changed yeah. yet. I feel like I've learned a lot this week, actually, just some reading some brilliant articles and various other things that we're going to go on to talk about in the show. I've also cried a lot this week. I'm very emotional, unsurprisingly, about anything to do with the NHS, um, having had such an incredible birth at Chelsea and Westminster under the NHS. A nurse named Christy Watson has written a book about her 20 years spent as an NHS nurse called The Language of Kindness, A Nurse's Story, which is published on May the 3rd, and I'm definitely going to buy it. The Sunday Times magazine ran an extract, and it is astounding. Joyously, it turns out, unlike most of their content, it's not behind the paywall. When I shared it on my Instagram stories, I got dozens of replies saying oh my god I can read this you know it's not behind the paywall but also this is the best thing I've read most movingly I got loads of messages from nurses an oncology nurse wrote to me saying she just got home from a long night shift and she was exhausted and she'd really go to bed but she just had to read the piece Mm. and she said you know I'm so glad I did I'd had a really hard day and it absolutely reinforced why I'm doing this Um, one nurse who wrote to me I said um, I'm so sorry I can't remember the name of everyone just off the top of my head I said to her you know you're incredible you do such a valuable job and she said no I am the lucky one these people choose to share the toughest moments of their lives with me which just makes me want to sort of cry all over again I'm going to read the last paragraph of the extract because it was really beautiful and I'm going to try not to cry because I don't weep very gracefully even now I'm afraid when I push open the door to accident and emergency So let us go in together. I take a deep breath. If you come with me, then anything is bearable. Take my hand. 
Hold my hand tightly. Let us fling open the door and find whatever we find. Face all the horror and beauty of life. Let us really live. Together, our hands will not shake. Oh, Pandy. I literally just, just lost no, it. <laughs> eyes are glassing over. Oh, it's, a, it was, it's such an amazing piece. I honestly, I can't recommend reading anything more. Um, the frailty of life, the fragility mm. of life, but also just what these what these nurses, anyone mm. who who works in hospitals, actually private and, and, you know, state. It's just the most incredible piece. My last article recommendation this week was a really interesting piece. As I said, I just feel like I've read so many amazing pieces this week, you know, God bless fantastic journalism. It was in New York Magazine, which you can read on their website, The Cut, about a woman with autism who says that social media allows her to connect with her husband in a way I couldn't in real life. And it was really nice to read something that framed Facebook in such a positive Positive, light. Not because I feel sorry for Mark Zuckerberg or anything like that, but because nothing is wholly good or wholly bad. And I feel like we're in danger of thinking that social media is this like evil tool and actually we have to learn how to navigate it and how to use it as, you know, a force Mm -hmm. for good. Jennifer Marlia writes, Talking on Facebook was a different story. Online I could communicate without those worries about non-verbal cues. I felt free in a way I never did during first-person encounters. Ever since Dave and I got married in 2010, I've remained convinced that we wouldn't be together if we'd met in any other way. It's a really lovely piece, really interesting, and I will share the link in the show notes as usual. I think it is really important to remember those stories as well. Kate Lever's written this brilliant book called The Friendship Cure. Want to read that? Yeah, it's great. And in it, she talks, there's a whole chapter on social media friends and internet friends. And she makes a quite refreshing case by speaking to lots of different people for how it's a really magic, enabling and brilliant thing for not just people who are vulnerable, but people who are highly introverted or who find kind of social situations uh, very challenging. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that perhaps gets overlooked or dismissed when we talk about the kind of perils of social media. A friend of mine grew up in the depths of the countryside in the 80s and 90s and he's gay and he said his life was sort of pre and post grinder. Pre and post grinder. Seriously, because it connected him to a gay community that he'd just been, that he hadn't had or that felt shameful or felt like it was in the shadows. And I think that's a very compelling argument for how, how these tools, these social networking tools can change a person's life. What's been making you weep this week? Um, Or laugh or dance, any of the other? I'll tell you what's been filling me with rage and adoration and respect and love is an incredible book called To Throw Away Unopened by Viv Albertines. This is a follow-on from her first memoir that she published a few years ago called Clothes, 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 Music, 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 Boys, Boys, Boys. And... She that could so be the title of your memoir. I know, I know. I love her so much. She's she's a punk, basically. She's she's now in her sixties, but she was in a band that I loved called the Slits in uh, the seventies, and she was very entrenched in the London punk scene. Um, she was friends with all the Sex Pistols and Chrissy Hind. Uh, she's had a very very. It was a massive hit, runaway hit. That book. I think it's one of the best memoirs I've ever read, and it talks about her kind of coming from poverty. Uh, growing up in a single parent family, um, battles with infertility, cancer, motherhood and divorce. So this is her second memoir, which I've since read, she said was actually meant to be a work of fiction. And she wanted to write about um, a really sort of angry, hateful old woman. And she said she was walking around trying to think these thoughts of the woman and she realised that actually they were just her thoughts and that she's filled with with anger as uh, she has every right to be and it's 
it's really beautifully constructed. Apparently the construction of it, the actual format of it took a year in itself because the anchor of it is her mother's death, which she kind of, as mad as it sounds, she plays out in real time over the deathbed, um, over the whole memoir in a series of vignettes. And it, it's uh, the reason that's an interesting tool is because over her mother's deathbed, her and her sister, after 60 years of tension, um, over the her mother's body, have this operatic physical fight. This sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. And it's and she delves into... You can see why she how, didn't need it to be fiction. But yeah, exactly. She's had a very dramatic life, I think. And, and she weaves back into um, family secrets and family tension and the relationship between one's mother and the relationship. She talks a lot about her own experience of motherhood. Um, and she said when I listened to an interview about it she said it was really it's very gritty her writing is always very gritty and very truthful but she said that it was really important for her to have that deathbed scene uh, told played out truthfully because she said she thinks that it's quite a common thing for people that the death in a family can often unearth huge amounts of unsaid things uh, resentment, tension, yeah. and she said a lot of people have got in touch to say that they had a similar experience. With that as the vignette, she also talks about her kind of story and her experiences of being a woman, and that's when it becomes a feminist text, really. And she talks about the expectations on her. She talks a lot about body hair in a really interesting way that I've never read about before. Um, she talks about internalized patriarchy so well. She says that patriarchy is like an army that has outposts in your head. And I actually wanted to read just this section. It really is. She stole your book. I know. She's so good. I really love her. I just want to read this section where she's talking about um, internalised patriarchy. For 60 years, I've been shaped by men's point of view on every aspect of my life, from history, politics, music and art, to my mind and my body, and centuries more male-centric history before that. I'm saturated with their opinions. I can think and see like a straight white man. I can look at a woman and objectify her, see how a man sees her. I can think like a male criminal. To stay safe, you have to anticipate their thoughts and actions. I can think like a rapist for fuck's sake. And then she quotes Margaret Atwood. You are a woman with a man inside watching a woman. You are your own voyeur. Some women can block out patriarchy and get on with their life. The same way our brains filter out most visual input to our eyes because if we could see every molecule that's out there we'd go insane i can't block patriarchy out i was trained by my mother to notice it to seek it out and fight it it's a really really good book and after you've read that i urge you to listen to the literary friction episode which features uh, an interview with viv albertine which is uh, on the theme of memoir. So they talk about their favourite memoirs. It's a really good, it's my favourite book discussion podcast. They've had some of our favourite writers on. They've had Sally Rooney, Sarah Pascoe. It's a really well curated and well researched show. So I'm just Viv Albertine mad this week and everyone should go buy that book. Is that why you turned up with Viv written on your head? I wonder. <laughs> yes, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> I've also been listening to Fern Cotton's uh, podcast series, Happy Place. The Alexandra Shulman episode I think you'd really like. Oh, I would be very interested because obviously there's been um, some furore around her departure from Vogue, not least that controversial piece she wrote for 
the God. Guardian. No, that was the Decca Aikenhead interview. It was mm-hmm. Awful. They don't actually touch on that because this. I think Happy Place is more about kind positive. of yeah, contentment yeah. and well-being and how you stay healthy. Yeah. Um, but she's a really. I really like her though. I know she's I like made her. some. She has made some missteps. I Definitely. Think. Um, but I've she's seen an interesting her, one. I've seen her talk live, and she's she's really smart and really interesting. Yeah, I agree, and she's um, she talks about how she handled confrontation at Vogue. She said the worst part of her job was that she often had writers thinking that they had filed really good copy to her and she knew she thought it wasn't good enough and she said she used to just lose sleep. It was her, she said that was her least favourite thing. It's my uh, least favourite thing as a writer being on the receiving end. I love it. <laughs> love being told I'm not I as love good being as I hope told I that the piece isn't as good as I think it is. Um yeah, so that's interesting, that tension she talked about. She actually really admire her for talking about the realities of being the breadwinner because she said that she was interesting. at Vogue for 25 years and Fern Cotton says, and she says this actually yeah. in um, the Vogue Diaries in her brilliant book. Yeah, it's really good, she, um, she said, there's a bit in it, I remember an entry where she said she was contemplating a quieter life and she said, shall I just go and live in the country and let my hair grow go grey and make lots of soup and Fern Cotton said is that something that you thought about in your kind of busiest and most hectic and and difficult weeks at Vogue and she said yeah I thought about it all the time but I didn't have a choice Mm -hmm. which I'd never heard her say that before she was like if I had someone else paying the mortgage or someone else paying for my kids whatever then yeah probably would have done that but the reality was she said that only after 25 years her son was grown up and that's when she could leave so I found that interesting yeah. and also thank you so much to all the listeners who know what a little geek I am about Desert Island Discs who told me that Kirsty Young was uh, this week's episode of Happy Place and it's a, just a beauty it's, she's got great guests Fern Cotton yeah this yeah. podcast sounds like it's going to be big yeah she's got all the guests that I approached for love stories and all their publicists said that they're too busy um, <laughs> well uh, that's very very <laughs> humble of you to tell everyone else that um but I don't mind because this interview is great. There are so many good moments in it. She talks about the complexity of success very well because Kirsty Young's kind of managed to see a cross-section of human life in a way that most people don't in their whole lifetime because she she hosts as Undis, so she kind of hears everyone's different stories of struggle. But also and... harnesses their stories. Yeah. She's like, hold that, hold that story. We're going to divide it into two sections and we're just going to sort of rebut it with a bit of music. She literally, like, she's yeah. a composer of stories. Exactly, a composer of humanity, exactly, of, of expressing that humanity. She talks very persuasively about social media and why she's not on social media. And she talks about how she worries for her kids that their desire is to have had something done rather than doing it. So she's like, I worry that they go on holiday so they can post that they've been on holiday rather than being in the holiday. If the tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, did it fall at all? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she comes from this kind of Glaswegian, very down-to-earth stock. And there's this, you know, there's a a really funny bit where she's talking about the whole sharing thing. She's like, I say to them, do you know what I call that? I call it boasting. <laughs> but uh, she's quite an interesting one in herself because she obviously comes from this working class Glaswegian background. But she's married to Nick Jones, mm. the founder of Soho House, who mm. is hugely, hugely successful. Mm. And undoubtedly, she lives with him an unbelievable life of privilege. Definitely. So I, I, I'm more, I'm actually quite interested in her. I would like her to do a Desert Island Discs hosted by herself. 
Well, when I take over her job, she'll be my first guest. Uh, My favourite bit was she talks about the best piece of advice she's ever been given by a castaway. She said it to me actually when I interviewed her as well. And it's a very, very simple piece of advice, but I think it's one we should remind ourselves of every single day. Listen to your friends. Your real friends, your close, close friends are totally engaged in your life. They're completely invested in what is best for you. But unlike probably members of your family and certainly unlike you, they have the advantage of distance. And so they can see before you might ever see it and certainly in ways where our complex familial relationships can sometimes really cloud judgment of of people that we are close to. So when a friend, a good, true friend who knows you, who you trust, tells you something, really take time to listen to it because the chances are it will be incredibly good advice. We also had an email which isn't an Ask the Hilo and it's not feedback to an episode but it's very moving and it's very important and Dolly felt quite rightly that we should share it here in the hope that the Hilo could offer as a connector of Mm. sorts Mm. and it's on millennial grief. I'm 26 and on Saturday the 14th of April, a day after my birthday, my mother passed away from terminal cancer just under a year after she was diagnosed. Words cannot describe the pain. She was the closest person to me and the void in my life already feels unbearable. In the run-up, I was doing a lot of research about grief and about support groups. The problem seems to be that there's a huge gap for millennials. There are support groups for children who've lost parents and adults who've lost parents, but the latter category is usually dominated by older people who are at a more natural age to have lost a parent. My mother will never see me marry, she will never meet my children, she won't see me achieve my goals at work or see me published. I feel I've only just started finding out who I am and she'll never see me become the person I'm growing to be. A lifetime without her feels excruciatingly empty. I'm wondering if anyone else who listens to the Hilo has gone through a similar thing and would like to meet up with me or email me or know of any resources specifically for 20-somethings based in London who have lost a parent or a loved one. I will be going to counselling. I have some amazing friends. I'm planning on doing all the self-care in the least buzzwordy way in the world. I just really crave meeting people who are in the same situation because I really don't know anyone who's been through a similar thing. Oh... This is a very, very moving email and um, actually really beautifully written. Mm. That line in there about um, it being excruciatingly empty and her not seeing the person you're going to be really resonated with me because I, I think your 20s are a really big... I know everyone thinks you're grown up by 21, but mm. I've become the person I am, I think, in the last five mm. years. Mm. And it's I'm just so sorry for your loss. I'm sure some people will get in touch with us and we will forward on the emails to you and hopefully you can go from there. Hilo comes from the Google Pixel 2. Google has been built on asking questions and challenging the status quo. From maps to email, search and beyond, Google has a history of looking at the norm and finding a better way. Next Thursday, the 26th of April, sees the launch of The Flip Side, a multi-sensory exhibition curated by Selfridges at the Old Selfridges Hotel in London's Orchard Street, in partnership with the Google Pixel 2. The exhibition provides a thought-provoking journey into luxury as some of the most forward-thinking brands and creative minds intersect with radical ideas. Showcasing the low-light capabilities of the Google Pixel 2, the installation invites you to explore a breadth of visual expressions. Build your own definitions of luxury and use them to create a personal portrait that allows you to share your vision. Google Pixel 2 photography tours are also available to book at selfridges.com forward slash flipside. Thanks very much to the Google Pixel 2.
It's Top Line Time, read by Pandora Sykes. When in this charming car, this charming to mark the 50-year anniversary of Enoch Powell's 1968 anti-immigration Rivers of Blood speech, BBC Radio 4 broadcast the transcript, read by an actor, and analysed it with a discussion of experts. This decision divided listeners, with many saying it glorified and endorsed his racist views. Kanye West is back on Twitter after almost a year of silence. His first tweet was a picture of his favourite St Pablo t-shirt. He then went on to ponder consciousness in a series of thoughts, including some people have to work within the existing consciousness while some people can shift the consciousness. Good to have you back, Kanye. City Hall has announced that the first statue of a woman in Parliament Square will be unveiled next week. Designed by Turner Prize winning artist Gillian Waring, the bronze of suffragist leader Millicent Fawcett will be the first of a woman to stand in the square, which currently houses 11 statues, all of men. It will also be the first to have been designed by a woman. In completely unsurprising news, Morrissey has given another mad interview. The former Smith singer published an interview on his website in which he said that the EU won't allow Brexit to happen, UKIP is dead, Theresa May is incapable of leadership and even Tesco wouldn't employ Diane Abbott. He also claimed inaccurately that halal meat requires certification that can only be given by supporters of ISIS. For God's sake. A think tank has found that up to a third of millennials face living in private rented accommodation all their lives. The research also said that 40% of millennials were living in rented housing by the age of 30, twice as many as Generation X. The government said it was already putting policies in place to improve the housing market. Beyonce has announced that she is donating $100,000 to four historically black colleges in America. The pop star announced her Homecoming Scholars Award programme through her Bay Good initiative on Monday. She plans to give $25,000 each to Tuskegee University, Bethune-Cookman University, Xavier University of Louisiana and Wilberforce University. One student from each school will receive the scholarship money. Three Jewish Labour MPs received standing ovations in the House of Commons this week after attacking the party's handling of Labour's anti-Semitism row. Jeremy Corbyn has become increasingly marred in accusations that anti-Semitism in the party has grown under his leadership, with his son, Tommy, also coming under fire this week for his recruit of a former BNP supporter in a Labour campaign film coming to ITV in the BBC next month ahead of local elections. Pret have been banned from using the word natural in descriptions of their products. The ASA told the food chain that it could no longer claim that term after a campaign group called Sustain discovered that Pret's bread ingredients includes three E numbers. Eurovision winner Conchita Wurst has revealed that she has HIV. The 29-year-old Austrian singer has been undergoing treatment for several years. The New York Times and the New Yorker magazine have won a joint Pulitzer Prize for their investigations into the Harvey Weinstein harassment cases. Journalists Jodie Cantor, Megan Tuer, and Ronan Farrow's pieces were honoured with the esteemed Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. And that was The Top Line. Surprise. Now, Ronan Farrow is my age. Actually, is he? I think he might even be younger. I think no. he might be 29 or 30. Yeah. Really? God. What shall I write about? <laughs> I'll get back to you. Voice notes. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of year. The sun is shining on Indio and California, and all your favorite VS models are hot pant ready. I'm only kidding, they're always hot pant ready. But why does everyone love to hate Coachella? I've come to dread that time of year when my Instagram is filled with peephole leotards and flamingo inflatables. <laughs> Mira Double Dipper on Twitter called them influencer pool parties. And I have started calling Coachella Oh Hella. But why are we all such Grinches? I put the question to Twitter and the journalist Jonathan Dean replied, I think it's 100% jealousy. Someone else tweeted me saying that at a London gym studio... They've been asked if they were Coachella ready, as if we're all naturally <laughs> attending. I know I do this every year when we discuss Coachella, and I'm sorry to sound like Hyacinth Bucket. Bouquet. Bouquet. But I really cannot make heads or tails of those mad old outfits. They're all either polyester, fishnet, bodycon, peekaboo leotard, leather or feathers. And I know it's not a Millet's fashion show, <laughs> but surely... They can see this is literally all the worst fabrics and fibres for the desert. You'd get pretty sweaty, wouldn't you, Nev? We'd both get pretty sweaty. TMI, we are two sweaty bitches. We almost called the podcast that. Anyway, no viscos allowed around our parts. I digress. Coachella, almost more than any other festival, makes a mockery of festival fashion in all its reductive, boohoo.com, fast fashion, culturally appropriative... Does that work? Going with it. Guises. Rose Fletcher tweeted to me, Coachella seems to exist only for Instagram. Most people in the UK, including me, have never actually seen any videos or clips of any performances, but about 4 million pics of 20-somethings wearing flower crowns and neon sunglasses. I think people, and when I say people, I am obviously referring to myself, are very snobby about Coachella. I think a lot of people still hold music festivals in a very romantic and nostalgic place in their heart which is they're a place of sort of freedom and expression where the ostracized can be deified where there's community and kindness and shared experience and and a kind of shared collaborative enjoyment and passion for music so for Coachella to put itself into this tradition and basically be a cheap very narcissistic fashion show for the under 25s who want to go listen to very commercial chart music i get why some people find it so laughable and therefore like to hate on it but i've got to say as someone who loves festivals and has gone to a lot of festivals in the last decade and in fact spent a whole summer on the road making a tv show about festivals they really don't exist in the way we think they do anymore it's really hard to find those smaller ones that aren't about business or brands or social media coverage you know, it's not likely that you go to Wilderness and you sit next to Samantha Cameron eating an arancini ball wrap and feel like you're at Woodstock. So perhaps we're a bit hard on Coachella, I wonder, for simply just being quite honest about how basic it is. They have been to Wilderness, the Camerons, haven't they? Yeah, some yeah, of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a real life arancini quote. <laughs> Well, I think it's not quite honest enough about what it is, and that's the problem. The thing about Coachella is that it's essentially a massive marketing exercise. It's it's an opportunity for affiliate marketing, 
as someone who works with brands myself, this is not a criticism, but more of an observation that Coachella's sole function is to generate huge commercial sales. The retailer that looks to spend the most on the festival is a millennial e-tailer that I actually don't think many people in the UK are particularly familiar with, but it is the queen of influencer marketing. It's called Revolve. Mm. And they told a website called Fashionista that their Coachella activation broke the budget, but that they moved more sales than any other time of year in Mm. the last few days that Coachella's been on. Maybe if they framed it as a commercial endeavour rather than as a music festival, then Coachella would get a lot less hate because it would be being honest about what it is or rather what it has become. You know that Cardigan Jumper B was there, by the way, Nev? That doesn't surprise me. Did you know that Turtleneck C was also there? Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> also, while we're on Cardigan B, I would like to thank very much the Hilo listeners who tagged me in the brilliant meme of a dad having a selfie with Cardi B with the message who is Cardi B underneath it uh, really did feel like a self-portrait Dolly ahead of this week's discussion tweeted Coachella sounds like a pasta shell it does if I sat with you if we went to Little Italian now and I said I'll have the Coachella Pomodoro you wouldn't blink <laughs> you wouldn't bat an eyelid as opposed to the penne arrabbiata <laughs> So this year, people are calling Coachella Baychella. Oh yeah, everyone's going nuts for um, Beyonce's performance. What did she do? Well, quite rightly so, because Beyonce is the first black woman to headline Coachella in the festival's 19-year history. The accusations against Coachella are not all of the I can see your labia in those denim shorts variety. They run deeper for a number of reasons. The man that owns Coachella is a billionaire named Philip Anschutz who has been linked with far-right Christian groups. I still refuse to go to a festival that is owned by someone who is anti-LGBT and pro-gun, wrote Cara Delevingne on Instagram on Sunday, although she did congratulate Beyoncé for an iconic performance. In response, the 70-year-old's company, Anschutz Entertainment Group, released a statement saying it wholeheartedly supports the LGBTQI community. Our recent support of the Elton John's AIDS Foundation and its vital work speaks to our organisation's true values. Anne Schutz says that he regrets if any money was given to charities who may have worked against these values. This was not my intention, it does not reflect my beliefs and I'm committed to making sure it does not happen again. I mean, joke's on him if he is a bigot, because Coachella is camper than Christmas. (laughs) There's also the issue of cultural appropriation at Coachella, something present at many festivals. In the past, it's been the playground of quite thoughtless dressing up. This year, our favourite website, Teen Vogue, came to the rescue and actually issued an article with sort of top tips and an explanation on how to avoid cultural appropriation, unpacking why wearing feather headdresses, cornrows and bindies is so problematic. The article concludes... Stripping a cultural object of its significance and donning it like a costume is the very height of disrespect. It's not just ignorant, it's dehumanising and incredibly painful. Go to Coachella, dance in the sun, watch Beyonce perform, Instagram every moment and have a blast. Just don't do it at anyone else's expense. I wish Teen Vogue had been around like that when we were teenagers. Teenagers will read that and then they will have figured out how not to dress by the Mm. time they hit their 20s. This entire conversation is not specifically about Coachella or festivals, really, is it? It's about festivals in the Instagram age. It's just a different kind of scrutiny now. And it, and in turn, festivals and Coachella take on a different kind of meaning and purpose. It's that whole, 
you know, did it happen if you didn't Instagram it mm. that we were talking about earlier? Kirsty Young talking about her boys. I remember going to Secret Garden Party. I was actually there when I found out that Amy Winehouse had died. You're joking. I was there when I found out Amy Winehouse had so died. So close. I know. You wouldn't have recognised me, though. Really ages us, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway, no one can get hold of anyone as there was no reception and no charges. So you'd actually lose someone and you would find them three days later. At the end mm. of the festival, you'd be like, did you have a good time? It could be one of your best friends who you'd gone to the festival with. If you wanted to see each other, you'd literally have to hold hands for three days straight, which wasn't practical, but I did it and it was effective. And some people hold hands for three days straight at festivals for other reasons. I'm Three uh, days straight afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, talking at quite a few festivals this year. Humble brag! I actually take you to task on that because I don't think it's a humble brag. I think it is actually just a brag. <laughs> uh, I think this year might be my final year of... Um, like the final fancy dress hurrah with all the sort of glitter and silly silly cat ears and all that stuff just because I feel like next year it has to be denim shorts and a t-shirt maybe a fun pair of sunglasses any baby friendly festivals you're speaking at that I can trundle along to watch you speak at with a baby in a backpack like your uncle aunt I'll wear my best headdress and celebration do you know what they are all of them are baby baby friendly Okay, excellent. We'll come along then. <laughs> Some people had positive takes on Ohella. The comedian and writer Stevie Martin said, Part of me really believes that yes, it's the whitest, most basic festival of them all. But rather than crucify it, let people go have a nice time and focus on the festivals that you do like and that speak to you. Let's use Coachella to inspire us to create less incredibly basic white people festivals. We've got loads. What do you think? Yeah, I think we are quite snobby about it. Also, not everyone has to be a fashion trailblazer or even vaguely creative. If you want to wear a little fake flower crown and a labia skimming pair of denim hot pants and some sort of fringy kimono, just what's the problem? That's fine. I've got no problem with your labia trim. It's more just if there's a headdress there too. Yeah. Can you imagine if Coachella started a diversity quota? Less important, but still cruising around my frontal lobe. Maybe they should start a clothing quota too. So they're kind of looking at their list and they're like, well, we've got 48,000 registered fishnet hot pant wearers. We need at least four anoraks to bounce out. <laughs> I am historically most confused when looking at what people wear to Coachella, more than any other festival, given that it's in a desert. But I did like the Swedish model Elsa Hosk, who looked like a powder puff fairy with pink hair, a pink dress and pink pom-pom sandals. She genuinely looked like the unicorn that I want to ride into the sunset. That was my favourite look, actually, I think, of all of them. To conclude, at least Coachella is not Fire Festival, a hugely glittery, vapid festival co-created by the rapper Jerule, which paid models like Kendall Jenner billions of pounds to promote it, and then quite literally did not exist. Do you remember this last summer? People were spending $20,000 or $30,000 on a ticket and a private plane, and then they would arrive on the island of Great Exuma in the Bahamas to find nothing. Nothing had been built. This luxury accommodation were tense there was no food there was this amazing Vanity Fair profile piece on it last summer and which I'm rather looking forward to there is a docu-series about the catastrophic non-making of it coming to the streaming platform Hulu in the States so I think we just need to wait for a channel to snap it up over here that's hilarious so it's literally just like bad planning I mean like terrible planning yeah that's, so that's what would happen if I decided to organise a festival except it wouldn't be in the Bahamas <laughs> Roger that. Support for the Hilo comes from Treatwell. You can browse your local salons online, find the best deals, and book your treatment on the website or via the app. It couldn't be easier. Treatwell is the brighter, simpler, easier, and smarter way to book beauty. 
Plus, you can choose your salon by browsing within your budget or looking at user reviews. Spring has sprung, as I declared across my Instagram stories earlier this week when I unveiled, yes, unveiled, my pastel nails. A few people commented that they weren't the daffodil nails I spoke of last week. And you're right, I had a last minute change of heart because Treatwell is all about impulse booking. It's not just your nails that deserve a spring sheen. Bit of a pun there. Although my talons would love a bit of nail art. In which case a lunchtime leg wax could be just the ticket. Or perhaps you fancy a spa day or a facial to prepare you for the sunshine. Is that why you turned up wearing tights? Because you need a little treat well for the sunshine. For me, it's always a massage, come rain or shine. Whatever your flavour, treat well is great for discretion and bargains. If you book last minute or at an off-peak time, I am queen of off-peak times right now, then you can get up to 50% off, as documented by my eyebrows. She's waggling them at me. So go on, waggle yours! Don't forget to use our exclusive discount code HIGHLOW10, H-I-G-H-L-O-W-10, to get £10 off your first booking. Thank you very much to Treatwell. Our second topic this week is one that throws up a lot of interesting and very important questions about the way we form, express and cite opinion and experience in our time. American political commentator Sally Cohn has recently published a book called The Opposite of Hate, A Field Guide to Repairing Our Humanity, in which she explores how hate infects our entire society and how we can fight back. Sally includes the written theories of people like bell hooks, but one quote has incited particular controversy. In an early chapter about Twitter trolls, Cohn attributes an explosive phrase to Call Your Girlfriend podcast host, Aminatu So who accuses her of misquoting her, misrepresenting their relationship, and latterly failing to handle the scandal that ensued. Sally wrote, My friend, the writer, Aminatu, has cautioned that there's a compounding unfairness, even oppression, in expecting the most marginalised among us to take the high road. Why is it black women are always asked to do the work? Aminatu chides one day as we're in a cab and I'm telling her about my book. Once you're provoked, the rules of engagement change, she adds, and I can fucking kill you and I'm justified in doing that, metaphorically speaking. The conversation is meant to have happened in a cab that they shared after a party when heading home to the neighbourhood in Brooklyn where they both lived. Aminatu has publicly said she cannot recall the specifics of the conversation and she definitely didn't give Sally Cohn permission to publish it in her book. She told The Cut, It was just so shocking to me that knowing what the subject matter was, it was not treated with more care. If you quote somebody and say they're the moral authority, wouldn't you send them a galley? Which is like a proof. If I was your friend, you would probably want to protect me more. She contacted the publisher who said it was too late for her name to be removed in print. It's been removed from the Google Books and Kindle versions and will be removed in all future print editions. Sally Cohn has publicly apologised and at Aminatu's request, the publisher has also made a donation to an Oakland-based organisation that seeks to empower girls of colour. Pandora, what are your thoughts on this story? There are two things about this that I find particularly interesting. Firstly, Aminatu said that they are not friends. That cab journey, she said, is the first real conversation her and Sally had with Mm. one another. She said if they were friends, you'd check the quote, right? If you were writing an explosive book with an explosive quote from your friend, the friend would be like, hey, how's the book going? You'd be like, you know what? I've got this really incisive 
bit from you. Can I ring you up and do a proper interview? And then I'll send you the quote. So she didn't do that. And she's like, if we were mates, she'd do that. Mm. So she wasn't a friend. She was an acquaintance, which makes the whole thing even kind of murkier because it's just sort of profiteering a bit, really, isn't it? Secondly, she says, and this is really important to white, woke women. It's a lesson to me and you, I think, Dolly, as hopefully woke white women to not take gross advantage of affiliations you may have with people who can kind of bolster your credibility. Yeah. Yeah. Don't use a black woman to give you credence, says Animatu. At least don't use her without checking the quote with her first, especially when it's a really kind of explosive quote. You know, within that quote, it says, I'll fucking kill you. Yeah. She should have been given a chance to explain what that meant perhaps or reword it you the know. first she knew of it was when Sally goes you're in my book by the way yeah hey I wrote a book you're in it yeah I think there are two stories that are very much symptomatic of our times here I think first and foremost what makes this as you say a particularly disappointing and controversial incident is that the issues covered in the quote are very very sensitive it's not a case of someone borrowing a one-liner or an offhand comment it's sort of searing social political commentary crucially relating to someone's personal experience what makes it even more uncomfortable is the fact that sally Cohn is a white woman using the insight and wisdom of the black experience without permission i obviously don't think sally Cohn shouldn't be allowed to speak of the black experience or quote people of color that should be an essential part of investigation but it should be handled with the utmost respect and care You know, the disparity between the amount of white people published per year and the amount of black writers published per year is enormous. If you're utilising your platform as a white voice to create a shared space, it's not enough to say that you had good intentions simply by including them. You have to make sure it's entirely in their words and on their terms. I want to caveat here that Dolly and I are not saying that we would know exactly how to get it right if we wrote this book by hell we wouldn't but that's why we didn't write this book and won't be writing a book like this because it does require a tremendous amount of research and a tremendous amount of knowledge and sensitivity that i i don't think i have to write that so don't write it that's what it comes down to don't don't write that book unless you have that and it is odd that as an experience she's got a huge twitter platform herself she's a cnn journalist she's really well known yeah I rediscovered the pop culture and news podcast that Animatu co-hosts with the journalist and her best friend Anne Friedman called Call Your Girlfriend this week. Firstly, I learned a lot. I was listening to the 9th of March episode. I learned about odearism, which is a term coined by Adam Curtis to describe the sort of clicktivist reaction to injustices in the world where people mm. just go, oh dear, and then carry on with their day. I learned about millennial pinkwashing. Have you heard about that, Dolly? No. So it's the idea that you take this kind of this zeitgeisty colour, millennial pink, which has been the colour used by every Instagrammable venue and fashion label worth its salt in the last 18 months. And it's used as a term to explain how activism's given this kind of cutesy, vapid vibe. For example, all those feminist t-shirts that read stuff like, feminism is so cute, but doesn't actually give any of the you know proceeds to women's charity. So I learned about that. And thirdly, and most presently for this argument, I learned that Animatu and Anne really, really hate having their words and their arguments and their terms appropriated. Anne says, as two cool internet ladies, people think that we should be really chill about having our arguments taken on by other people, but actually it really pisses us off. We're not like chill, cool internet ladies about that. 
Removing this specific example of the subject matter from the discussion, I do think it's an interesting and more complicated question of how we learn and uh, borrow ideas. I often find when I'm writing notes for this podcast that I'm coming up with thoughts or opinions that I'm pretty sure I've cobbled together through multiple conversations with friends or uh, people I work Mm -hmm. with or people in passing or from articles and books I've read or things I've seen on Twitter. And that does become more tricky because the whole point of learning and entering democratic forums of discussion is we do all borrow bits and pieces of thought from each other. And that all weaves together in our either conscious or subconscious minds to form you know, where we stand on things. You and I always try and flag when we know we've been inspired or taught by someone or something. And I hope that's always been clear to the listeners in the past, which is why we'll always say, I was talking to this person about this and they said that, or I saw this person has written this. But I'll be totally honest, I'm sure there have been times where I've regurgitated something I've read or heard as my own opinion and not even been aware that it was lodged in my brain from another source. That's because you've never had an original point in your life, don't you? Well, that's my big fear, I think. I think this is why I found this story quite triggering. <laughs> Knowing what we were discussing today definitely coloured how I wrote the notes for today's show. Mm-hmm. For instance, I made sure I included the name of every listener who had written to us or recommended something to us. Going forward, I'm going to try and continue to do this. I won't say your surnames in case you'd rather not share that, but just to kind of be cognizant of the fact that this is not something we discovered on our own. This yes. is something that has been recommended to us and we're now bringing it to you. It also made me think a lot about what Animatu says about being white and borrowing from a black woman. Specifically, it made me think about the activist Tarana Burke, who created the Me Too movement in 2006 after visiting a youth camp for troubled children in Alabama. Tarana said she had mixed feelings about the Me Too movement becoming this social media firestorm a couple of months ago when the actor Alyssa Milano adopted the phrase Me Too on Twitter in reference to being harassed by Harvey Weinstein. Tarana said in an interview recently, Honestly, that morning, I just felt panicked. I spent the first part of that day feeling like the work I had invested my life in was going to be erased by a simple tweet. So, I mean, let's be honest. How many people know that Tarana Burke created the Me Too movement? I think most people would say it's Rose McGowan. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's an argument that can possibly be even more applied to visuals as we live in such a visual age now, R.O.P. words. Do you think it's impossible to give credit where credit is due in the internet age? Because a continuing argument is that all of the big memers on Instagram, so Fat Jewish, Shithead Steve, Girl With No Job, the Boy With No Job, how long can we go on for? (laughs) We love those. (laughs) Don't credit their memes and rip off small time memers. And I often find pictures of myself or pictures I have taken on other accounts. I find you on Pinterest constantly. What are you doing on it? I I constantly see your little mug on Pinterest. Whilst looking for more cushions, (laughs) more more throw cushions. (laughs) Recently someone emailed me asking if they could illustrate an article they had written with a photograph of mine and my baby's feet in the bath. And I said, no, that's a personal photograph, but thank you for asking. But actually, I don't own that image she didn't need to ask me instagram owns that Mm. image zuckerberg Mm. owns that image by putting an image on instagram you are relinquishing all of your rights to ownership and in order to use that image all a publication has to do is credit instagram i don't think many users of instagram know that and it should really stop me in my tracks a bit more than it does yeah but i wonder if that culture is the thing that's that's made us so much more relaxed about this constant borrowing without permission because you do see images reused all the time because of Instagram. 
whenever I write articles now, I think I drive my mates quite berserk because if ever I'm using one of their jokes or observations or referencing them or telling a story about them, I always email them to check it's okay. I'm so paranoid about ever getting a call telling me that I didn't seek their permission. Um, and I always ask if they want their name in it or if they'd like for it to be anonymous which is why my articles are constantly littered with my friend blah blah once said. I just think it's so much better to err on the side of caution rather than get that call. For example, when I was in the middle of writing my book last year, I was sitting next to my friend's husband at lunch and he made a joke about weddings that I found really, really, really funny. And I left the lunch just thinking about that joke all afternoon. And then I emailed him the next day saying, would you mind if I used that joke in my book, in the chapter, which is a sort of satirical wedding invite? And he said, of course. And I wonder, he's a shout out to Tom Bird. He's one of the funniest men I've ever met. Thank you for letting me use your joke. But I wonder how he would have felt if he had seen that, me using that joke without asking him. I think it really is just asking permission. That's all it is. And I also think that's where great writing and, and really strong, well-formed thought comes from in those conversations, in taxis after parties or sitting next to someone at lunch. And we shouldn't be scared of learning from each other and being enriched by each other's minds. But I think you just have to be really explicit and clear about permission. It's just that simple. I've just realised I spend my life quoting or most likely misquoting my mum because I think she's hilarious, as most writers do their mothers. And I never check permission. It's rather arrogant of me. I'm very sorry, mum. You should be checking. Do I ask for permission? I think I do, actually. Very exploitative of us. All that said, I really do not think this should be an incident that tarnishes Sally Cohn's career forever. I think it's a mistake she'll learn from. But I think it's a lesson to us all, particularly in the context of how we use the thoughts and stories and quote oppressed and marginalised people. I think it's definitely cast a shadow on it because I, I think it's a really interesting sounding book. I love the concept of the book. I completely agree with where did all this hate come from? What do we do with it? It makes me really mm. distressed. I'm probably more intrigued to read it now because of the row. So it's, it's had actually mm. an adverse benefit to she, her. She should definitely, I'm glad she publicly apologised and that was, that's right and proper but Absolutely. I just don't want her I, I, you know just with the words of John Ronson always hanging in my head. I, no, it would I be bad if her entire career was ruined now because of this mistake. Well, she's apologised publicly and privately, I imagine, but from what I can see, it does not look like Animatu is ready to forgive her. And that's her prerogative, isn't it? As someone who feels like they have been grossly misrepresented and taken advantage of in books that aren't, unlike articles on the internet, ever going to be buried. Like, those are now out in print and there's nothing they can do about it. Mm. Also, this isn't relevant to the conversation, but I just felt like it was important to mention that... Um, while we were talking about her, that Animatu recently revealed that she has endometrial cancer and as a result oh has God. severe anemia and both her and Anne Friedman have been hosting blood drives all around the country in Aminatu's honour and helping save a lot of people. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And yet another reason to go back and check out the work they're doing and call your girlfriend. <laughs> It's now time for Ask the Hilo. I have recently found out that due to health conditions, I can no longer drink more than a few drinks without being terribly ill and it having negative effects on my body. This is very new to me. I've always loved a good night out and had my fair share of G&Ts, but now I'm the bore of the group and I hate it. It means that I can't drink at social occasions or after work. Everyone's always asking why and saying, come on, it won't hurt. My question is, how do you deal with being the bore of the group? Dolly, never the bore, what would you say? Well, I've actually outsourced the agony-antism for this one. 
I emailed one of my dearest, dearest friends, Belle, who has had health issues in the past. She had it at 19 when we were all students together. And then she had it in her mid-twenties. She was on medication when we all were living in London together, which meant that she couldn't drink. And I promise you, this is true and I say it, and all our friends will confirm this. Belle is the funnest person to go on a night out with and always has been. So I emailed her and asked for her advice. She said, impractical advice. Move to Europe because it's really just us moronic English people who've had this insecurity about everyone being inebriated to the point of being unaccountable in order to have a good time. If you can't move, do go on holiday there or at least remember that you aren't the odd one out here and thousands of people lead fun, sexy and exciting lives after 8pm without mainlining Ricardi breezes. Practical advice. Keep going out. You will have way more fun than you expect. Definitely go out clubbing this is not off limits. Remember that if you're out dancing to the wee small hours, not drinking, it's basically like you're doing Barry's boot camp. So no need to feel guilty (laughs) about the fillet of fish meal on the way home. Don't tell people when you arrive at an event or at the pub that you can't drink because of med reasons, because you'll spend the evening being the pity party or worse, having people try and talk you into drinking and you'll feel like shit. Tell people you're close to and who care about you what's going on, but only if you want to. Do not, I think this is a very important one, do not tell your lovely mates all the stupid things you remember them saying or doing or not doing when they were drunk the next day because it will make them feel like shit. I think that's in reference to my 27th birthday where I lost all um, language. Don't be surprised if people try to press you into drinking. It's not because they care about whether you're drinking or not, but because they are scared that they won't relax knowing someone isn't on their level. Try not to judge them for this. We are pack animals after all. Do drink lots of cola, lemonade or tonic water on the rocks with a slice of lemon or lime and a straw and literally no one will be able to tell it's not booze unless they take a cheeky sip. Wouldn't recommend drinking water too much when out because English punters are terrified of water in pubs unless it's to get you back on your feet after a tactical chunder or you're with child, it will attract attention. (laughs) On the plus side, you'll be able to spot a douchebag from a mile off because your beer goggles aren't on and you have 20-20 vision. Take sweets in your purse because you'll get tired without the sugar hit if you're out clubbing or on a late one. Most importantly, definitely do not drink because it will only slow down the healing process, make you sick and your health is way more important than fitting in and making other people feel comfortable. That's brilliant. Can we get a regular Ask Bell? If I cast the highlight, just do Ask Bell. Is nothing near as great, my advice. But as someone who didn't drink and definitely hasn't been drunk for almost the best part of a year it is one hell of a culture shock if you are used yeah. to drinking you know people tell you the same stories again and again and again you get very tired you often feel a bit like pissed off you know you're not really kind of in it but definitely don't worry about being the bore of the group you do mention in your longer letter love saying that <laughs> that you are 23 so at that age not to sound a really old or b patronizing i am the former but try not to be the latter um around that age it was just about getting wasted on the thursday friday and saturday night so you are in that age trust me when people grow out of it it makes absolutely no difference to me now if i have a friend who doesn't drink in fact i probably prefer going out with that friend because i know that they'll still be able to hold the conversation well i remember it the next day that's me told (laughs) yeah exactly that's why we haven't gone out for a while no i'm joking Um, so that feeling will that feeling will go and just when someone goes come on don't be boring you it, honestly ignore them you're not being boring yeah. you just say no I don't drink I'm absolutely fine thank you or I remember uh, what a friend of mine always used to do is order a you know a lime and tonic say about 90p I think yeah and called? as Belle says no, no one like will a, notice and it looks like a gin and tonic yeah yeah and 
just don't worry. I really think don't worry. As Belle says, your health is more important. And also, there's a brilliant, mindful and sobriety movement in London called Club Soda that's really cool and not earnest and sanctimonious. There are loads of really cool events, but it's not focused around booze. So you might be able to go and meet some cool people in the same situation as you there. Thank you very much to everyone who listened to The Hilo. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. You can email us, show at gmail.com or tweet us at show. But please do bear in mind we are not able to reply to all of your emails. I can smell chocolate chip cookies baking in the kitchen mm, made by Zadie's friend. In fact, shout out to Zadie's friend Janie because this podcast would not be here without her. Very important to acknowledge your childcare, especially when they are freaking old lifesavers. So I think we should go and eat some chocolate chip cookies in the sunshine now, Dolly. So do I. Goodbye. Bye-bye. CJ, you can come too. <laughs>